On March 29, 2017, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a book talk with Condelaria Garay, Associate Professor of Public Policy at HKS, whose new book is titled Social Policy Expansion in Latin America. Responding to Condelaria's remarks were Scott Mainwaring, Jorge Paulo Lehman Professor of Brazil Studies and Faculty Co-Chair of the Harvard Brazil Studies Program, and Stephen Levitsky, Professor of Government at Harvard University. Arkan Fung, HKS Academic Dean and Ford Foundation Professor of Democracy and Citizenship, moderated the discussion. This event was co-sponsored by the Harvard Argentine Student Society and the HKS Latin American Caucus. Basically, what, um, what I argue is that expansion took place, so the decision to expand took place in the context of democratic regimes in which incumbents faced either high levels of competition for the vote of the outsider <coughs> population or when incumbents were feeling the pressure of large-scale mobilization. So democracies that lacked any of these two conditions did not experience these processes of expansion. The existence of a party that can credibly <coughs> win elections and defeat the incumbent by gaining significant support among the outsiders. So it's a challenging party that can win the elections by mobilizing the outsiders. For those of you who know about Latin America, you know that some parties have had a bastion in the outsider population, like the PRI in Mexico. So the rural sector, the informal sector, vote for the PRI historically. And at some point, other parties tried to mobilize that vote. Many times, those challengers were trying to mobilize voters with the promise of social policy expansion. So that created incentives in incumbents to actually respond with the same proposals that their opponents were offering outsiders. Um, in other cases, facing competition, incumbents saw that to reach the very heterogeneous universe of outsiders, an easy, simple way to do it was to extend something that they all needed, which was social policy, to create tangible benefits that could unify a sector that is very diverse and geographically sort of in different, in different areas, rural, urban. So social policy provided that opportunity, and those are the incentives that I find were leading to a great extent these expansions. Um, in other cases, social mobilization was the driver. And usually this happened in a context in which that competition did not exist, or sometimes it combines with competition, but mainly it happens in the absence of electoral competition for outsiders, in which we see social movements taking shape that demand the creation of benefits. And these movements gain sufficient weight when they have an alliance with labor unions. So here is when the labor unions enter the story. They typically don't organize the outsiders or groups that represent outsiders, but they may join them in their demands when these groups are sufficiently big. And so we see processes of expansion in which these insiders-outsider coalitions are either the critical actors or very important actors putting pressure for the creation of benefits. This sort of pressure may come in the form of protest, sort of pressure through institutional channels, lobbying, putting people to talk with legislators, and there are lots of very creative things that activists have done to actually push forward these reforms, and also to mobilize and demonstrate support from the public. So sometimes bring a lot of people to the streets behind their demands as a way of demonstrating governments how popular their demands are, or run surveys, or things that would show that not supporting these initiatives may be costly. So um, across the cases, what I found is that in Mexico and Chile, most of the reforms were led by electoral competition, and in Argentina, and most in Brazil, although not all of them, by social mobilization. In Brazil, in the 
late 90s and especially in the 2000s there was intense competition for outsider voters which I sustained was behind the creation of the big transfer programs. And just to sort of very succinctly say why they created inclusive or restrictive benefits, inclusive benefits are launched when social movements are very active in policy making. So they want to participate in implementation, they want broad benefits, they basically want the same that the lower income insiders have. So the same pension benefit, the same sort of the same uh, or, or some kind of cash transfer in, in, in that reaches the outsiders. Where in the restrictive case, when there's electoral competition and no movements, parties negotiate the kinds of policies that they will create, and there's a plurality of interest in Congress that leads to an agreement over more restrictive benefits. It could be on the financial side or it could be in the policy design, but the outcome are more, more moderate benefits. And one key issue, and with this I finish, is that when parties launch these benefits, they don't want social movements to participate. They, they are not out there putting pressure, but they don't want to create any kind of demands from below. And in the context of this project, I carried more than 200, 270 interviews with people, social movements, sort of activists and, and, and policymakers. And this was very clear in sort of clear cut uh, across politicians, even on the left, the PRD in Mexico, whatever. They don't want you know, anyone participating. So I leave the space for the commentators. And thank you very much. Well, I think my job is to help celebrate the publication of a great book. Um, so I'm going to say three things that I think are really wonderful about this book and then close with a couple of questions that I think, you know, um, if Candelari wants to sink the next 20 years of her career into these questions, she, she could. Um, so what are the three things that I loved about this book? I, I mean, first of all, I think it's probably... The, the best book that's been written on social policy in Latin America. There might be something that I'm neglecting, but it really is a, a magisterial work. Uh, it's a major contribution to our understanding of social advances, not only in Latin America, but I think you know around the world, at least the developing world. And it's a really important contribution to Latin American politics beyond the social policy area. Um, so what is it, what are the three things I want to comment? First, um, uh, it's, it's a book about issues that are really important in the world. So it, it's a great work in social science, and it's the opposite of a great work about arcane issues, right? Um, I, I feel that it's proper to invoke the, uh, of course, long-deceased Harvard economist John Kenneth Galbraith at this session, after he'd retired, he wrote a book that's a spoof of the academic world called A Tenured Professor. And it's not a great novel, but it's pretty funny for those of us who are tenured or untenured professors. Uh, in it, um, there's a guy, a young man goes to Harvard, and as an undergraduate, he loves studying economics, and his mentors tell him, well, you should, become a, you should go get a doctorate and become a scholar and a teacher. And in graduate school, also at Harvard, his mentors tell him, never study anything that's useful for the world. It's the kiss of death in an academic <laughs> career. Um, so I mean, I think you know, one of the things we try to do here is have scholarship that's on the opposite end of that spectrum and 
Kambalaya, of course, has succeeded, you know, at a very high level in this endeavor. Uh, you know, the, the normative questions here are hugely important. Um, one way of framing it is how do you shift from, what explains the shift from politically manipulable, often very inefficient clientelistic social programs mm -hmm. to non-discretionary programs? Now, non-discretionary programs aren't inexorably efficient. They don't always work. But hands down, you know, we we'd probably everyone here would think that that's the way to go. Just I remember when I was doing my own dissertation research, I came across a newspaper clipping about a huge state in Brazil, Bahia, and this was no, this wasn't my this was my second book. So this was around 1988, and every single public school teacher in this state was a member of the governing party. So, I mean, that, that just gives you an, an idea of, you know, how incredibly clientelistic education was at that time. So this shift to non-discretionary uh, programs is hugely important. And related to it, of course, is, you know, in how do you, how do you target, how do you improve the lives of people in the bottom 40 or the bottom 60% or whatever percent it is in different countries. Of course, there are a lot of different ways, but social policy has to be central in that mix. So, um, uh, you know, and I think not only is this a hugely important issue in the world, it's also, it, it wasn't, a, a, it's not a, it's a new study. I mean, I, I was personally not even aware of this massive expansion of social policy until I read Candelaria's book. So a second thing that, um, you know, that Candelaria, of course, wouldn't um, talk about too much here, uh, but, um, you know, it, I, I'm entitled to be her propaganda agent in my 12 minutes, uh, is the extraordinary research effort that went into this book and the extraordinary empirical contribution. So, I mean, how many of you undertook serious field research for your dissertation in four countries <laughs> with 265 interviews and it's, you know, at least a, a several scores, at least, I don't know, I didn't count exactly how many in every country, but you know, it's pretty evenly distributed across the four countries uh, over eight years. The first of these interviews was 2006, and the last was 2014. Uh, a 27-page bibliography, and it's a bibliography that shows, and the, the text does as well, you know, deep familiarity with all four countries, and then there are four shadow cases. So it wasn't enough to do, you know, original field work over many years in four countries, there's also, there's a, a, an interesting discussion, you know, that, that the question is how far in space does, this, does the theoretical argument travel? Um, and even the shadow cases are, are very, very interesting and well done. Okay, so now this isn't enough, right? I mean, this is still not enough of a challenge. It's three discrete policy areas. Um, pensions, income support, and health care. So, you know, the, the, the mastery involved in really understanding three policy areas, long swoops of time, 
for um, four countries, you know, intensely, and four other countries. Uh, I mean, it's it's just a mind-boggling effort. Um, Steve and I combined did our dissertation work in two countries. <laughs> so. Um, uh, you're like anyway. a slacker, don't you? Well, I am a slacker. Let's face it. I am. I, I always feel that way, Steve. But thank you for putting that in public. <laughs> so the uh, the third thing I want to oh, but just on this subject also, um, Condelaria is right for the reasons she mentioned to point out that this you know this major expansion really cut against what we expected for a lot of reasons. She gave them, so I'm not going to repeat them. I was prepared to say something about that, but I really don't need to. Um, the third thing that I want to say uh, about the book, a third great contribution, is the theoretical contribution. Um, Candelaria really spelled it out. Uh, I will maybe briefly repeat it um, uh, and then say a little bit more beyond the description. So the first puzzle is what explains this expansion? And, you know, she, she said that it's either keen electoral competition for the votes of the formerly excluded population or social pressure from below. Uh, and then the second puzzle is what explains the difference between the much more expansive programs in Brazil and Argentina versus the much less expansive programs in Chile and Mexico. And here the answer, as she said, was, you know, it, it depends on how much social <coughs> pressure from below there was. Where there was really strong pressure from below, you got more expansive programs. Uh, the answer seems compelling. Um, you know, there might be um, places where it's wrong, but I didn't, I, it, I, I didn't really see anything that look to me, oh, this, this just doesn't make sense. Um, a couple of things about her answer that I want to highlight here that she didn't mention. There's a, I think, in the beginning of the book and then with each case study, a very good discussion of alternative explanations, right? So it's not, I'm latching on to my explanation and forgetting about all of the other plausible options out there. The second um, is that, you know, I think absolutely correctly, the causal inference is mainly within case. And so there's a historical analysis of all of these cases of what led to change or didn't lead to change when at specific moments in time in all three policy areas. Um, the writing is excellent. It's clear. Um, the exposition is very sensible. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm just in awe that you wrote that you write so well in English. You write better than than I do. So most people <laughs> might think that that's a low threshold, but uh, it's just really, you know, it's a it, the book is a pleasure to read. So let me close with two questions because um, Steve Levitsky will attack me if I go over my 12 minutes. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Steve has been a wonderful colleague for for many many years. Um, so one question, you know, um, Kandilaya writes um, that authoritarian regimes incumbents lacked incentives to initiate social policy expansion to outsiders. Um, and I, I, I mean, I'm sure that this answer is right, but 
Yeah, I just, I wondered about, you know, why more left-leaning regimes didn't engage in more expansion than they did. So I'm thinking of regimes such as, you know, this is very early to initiate uh, major social policy expansion, but Guatemala from 1944 to 54, or Bolivia from 1952 to 60, or even Peru uh, from 1968 to 75. Um, So there's an equally superb recent book by Michael Albertus on agrarian reform in Latin America. And in Mike's book, um, uh, authoritarian regimes were more likely to engage in large-scale land distribution than democratic regimes. And the reason is that democratic regimes have more veto points. Um, So it's easier for especially leftist authoritarian regimes to undertake far-reaching reform. So the logic in Mike's book is almost the reverse theoretical uh, logic that's in Candelaria's book. So the questions that I have are, are they both right? And if so, why is the logic for agrarian reform, which in a way is a more radical reform than social policy expansion, why is it so different for these two policy areas? The second thing that, you know, I think that um, the, the historical sweep of this book is very broad. Um, but I wondered, you know, if, if the, the, the theoretical argument places a lot of emphasis on, or all of the emphasis on, electoral competitiveness for outsiders uh, and social mobilization from below. So the question that I had was in earlier generations of, of Latin American politics, when you got one of these phenomena, or even both at times, uh, you know, in earlier generations, often illiterates were excluded, but still there were other parts of the informal sector over which there could have been electoral competition. Or some regimes might have said, oh, you know, it's to our benefit to include the illiterate, so they incorporate sectors. So I guess my question is, you know, why, why was there, um, there must have been earlier episodes of intense social mobilization and or intense competition for the, the votes of the formerly excluded that didn't lead to social policy expansion. So, um, you know, if you feel like writing, spending another eight years um, uh, on, on earlier episodes, either you or one of your students could do that. <laughs> Thank you. Great book. Okay. Thanks, uh, Akan, and thanks to all of you for having me here. Thanks, Candelaria, for writing this book, giving me a reason. Uh, let me just begin by echoing Scott. This is, and, and let me be really clear, this is an extraordinary book. Uh, as Scott said, a bunch of books, uh, very good books, have been written on social policy in Latin America over the last decade. I've read many of them. Uh, some of them are written by really smart and established scholars, but in my view, this is easily the most important book published on Latin American social policy in, in the last 10 or 20 years. Um, and so you're very lucky to have Professor Gadai here. Um, the book takes up a, a question of extraordinary importance, the inclusion of outsiders. 
for nearly a century, for, for really the entire 20th century, the great Achilles heel of the Latin American welfare state was its truncated nature. Uh, health, pension, other benefits reached only a privileged and really a small privileged group of formal sector workers, what Godai calls insiders. Informal and rural sector workers in many countries, a majority of the population, certainly the workforce, were basically swept under the rug of social policy. They were excluded. Um, and now, for the first time ever, uh, with the exception of a couple of fleeting instances that, that Candelari points out, for the first time ever, social policy is expanding across Latin America to include outsiders. So this is arguably the most important change in Latin American social policy in 50 years. Uh, very, very big and important question. And this book, more than any other, helps us to understand that change. So this is a really, really important book. Um, I find, like Scott, I find the central argument of the book pretty compelling. Social policy is more inclusive where governments confront uh, both high electoral uh, uh, competition for outsiders and uh, uh, social pressure from below. Uh, and to reiterate another point that Scott made, the argument is supported by an incredibly impressive amount of empirical evidence. Um, this is really extraordinary research. It is careful, it is rigorous, uh, and thorough research. Um, I used to pester Candelaria, as she mentioned, about the case of Peru, uh, which seems like a puzzle, uh, because Peru has an awful lot of outsiders, and, um, and yet relatively little social policy expansion has occurred, certainly compared to the cases that she covers in the book. But Candelaria came up with a pretty, pretty compelling answer. The incentives for Peruvian governments to appeal to the poor, to appeal to outsiders, are remarkably weak. Um, I'm going to get into a lot of detail about Peru, but uh, not only is there no presidential re-election in Peru, but there are no parties in Peru. So, so governments' time horizons are incredibly short. Personalistic presidents who cannot be re-elected have very little incentive to invest in social, in expanding social policy. So she actually came up with an answer. <laughs> now, <laughs> but praise is boring. Um, so, and, so I mean, let me just... <laughs> Let <laughs> me offer just a, a couple of quibbles and actually uh, then a couple of bigger picture questions. We're actually end up agreeing more than disagreeing with Candelaria. But a couple of quibbles, first of all. And these are quibbles you've heard from, from me before, so they're not new to you, Candelaria. Uh, first of all, for the life of me, I don't see why participatory institutions are packed into a measure of inclusive reforms. Uh, the book, as Candelaria pointed out, offers two big outcomes. Restrictive reforms, which are characterized by less extensive coverage, less generous benefits, and no participatory institutions. And inclusive reforms which are characterized by more extensive benefits, more generous, or more extensive coverage, more generous benefits, and some sort of participatory mechanism. So generosity, scope, and participation run together essentially by definitional fiat. Now, I know this is the Ash Center, but really? <laughs> Does it have to? <laughs> is it not entirely possible, both in theory and in practice, to have cases in which expansive, generous benefits are imposed from above, are, are, are not accompanied by participatory mechanisms? I would argue, in fact, that, that Canada's got one in her book. It's Argentina. Um, that's one quote. Uh, the other one is, I'm not, it's, it also has to do with sort of aggregation and disaggregation. Um, the other conceptual move I wasn't entirely persuaded by is the claim that only, or the, the, the assumption, I guess the claim, that only non-discretionary uh, expansion counts. Now, don't 
get me wrong, the move toward this move in Latin America that Candelaria documents well towards non-discretionary benefits is incredibly important. It's incre it has incredibly important consequences, um, both positively and normatively. But to treat non-discretionary distribution as a defining feature of social policy expansion seems to me a bit odd because it forces us in the end to lump Venezuela in with Peru and Guatemala essentially as cases of non-expansion or limited expansion. So why not treat these as two different types of social policy expansion, universalistic and politicized? Uh, Venezuela, as, as, as Candelaria mentioned, is a clear case of expansion of benefits to include <coughs> outsiders, even if social policies are highly politicized. Bolivia is more of a mixed case, uh, but there's some politicization there as well. Lumping those cases, lumping Bolivia and Venezuela in the same categories Peru and Guatemala just because social policy is moderately or heavily politicized uh, doesn't strike me as very useful. And I think it limits the capacity of the, tra of the, of the theory to travel to cases, because these are four advanced countries in Latin America. I think it limits the capacity of the, of the theory to travel to cases of weaker states. Um, just to give a weird example, 100 years ago, if a country adopted full adult suffrage and held elections without fraud, but there was widespread clientelism, um, we might say the new regime is a lower quality democracy, but we wouldn't say it's a non-democratic regime. It would be a kind of democracy, right? All right, two questions. Um, first one picks up on Scott's second question. I don't think I'm going to provide any more of an answer. But um, the, So the question is, why now? This is a really important question. Uh, why after decades, decades of truncated welfare states, do we see this wave of social policy expansion in the 90s and early 2000s? Now, the book mostly answers that question. The answers to that question are in this book. But the focus on explaining variation across cases ends up sort of muffling the, the larger macro-level answer. Um, now, Candelaria makes a pretty compelling case against the two dominant explanations that are out there. They are the left turn and the commodities boom. So she, or she shows very compellingly that the process of inclusion began before the left turn, before the commodities boom, and it took place considerably uh, in countries that had neither left governments nor large-scale uh, um, com uh, commodity rents. So I buy that entirely. She also makes a pretty good case that this isn't just a case of policy diffusion. So what is it? Why, after all these decades, does social welfare expansion occur now across the region? I want to suggest, and Candelaria does too, but it doesn't come out until page 331, that it's democracy. It's the endurance <laughs> of democracy. For the first time ever, Latin America now has 30 years of stable, widespread democracy. In Argentina, in Brazil, in Mexico, in Peru, Bolivia, El Salvador, Panama, Dominican Republic, Guatemala, Paraguay, maybe missing one or two. Democracies now survive longer than ever before in history. Democracy does not automatically bring generous social policy. It doesn't automatically bring an expansion of social policy. But where democratic regimes survive over time, uninterrupted by coups, uninterrupted by threats of coups, that creates the space and the incentives to appeal to popular majorities, to appeal to outsiders and to bring them in. Stable democracy is what allows Candelaria's two main mechanisms to work, electoral competition for outsider support and popular mobilization. In earlier years, in the earlier years that Scott was, 
was, was pointing to, was mentioning, popular mobilization very often would trigger coups rather, rather than social policy expansion. And when a president, be it Goulart or Allende, would appeal to outsiders, there was a good chance they would be overthrown. Only now, starting in the 1980s and 90s, have democratic politics really been allowed to play out in Latin America. And the result is a dramatic move towards inclusion. Again, Bush makes this point, but it's a little, little bird. Another factor here, Conrad might disagree with me, that may help to explain the why now question, I think it's secondary, um, is the decline of unions. Unions do many, many important things for democracy. But Latin America, with few exceptions, some exceptions, but still few, they have mainly been champions of insiders and one of the greatest defenders of the truncated welfare state. Unions have weakened dramatically across most of Latin America for the last 40 years. In many countries, they represent 10% of the workforce now. They are a shell of what they once were. And classic labor-based parties have either collapsed, like AD in Venezuela, or reduced unions to a pretty marginal status within the party, like the PRI in Mexico, Peronism in Argentina, uh, APA in Peru, the Socialists in Chile. The weakening of unions, both in society and within governing parties, almost certainly made it easier for governments and parties to shift from an insider orientation to an outsider orientation. The cost today of abandoning a privileged relationship with insiders is much lower than it was 30 years ago. All right, second and final question regards sustainability. Um, how permanent is this? The commodities boom is over. The pink tide is receding. The left is out of power in Argentina and Brazil. Candelaria, two of her main cases, may soon be out of power in Chile. That may soon be in power in Mexico, we'll see. But, uh, but for the most part, left governments that, that were associated with dramatic social policy expansion are on their way out. What does that mean for, uh, for Candelaria's outcome, for social policy expansion? In some sense, it's kind of a good test for Gadai's argument. If social policy expansion, for example, depended on the commodities boom, as some scholars have argued, not Candelaria, then we should expect to see some rollback. If social policy expansion rested on partisanship, on left government, which several scholars have argued, not Candelaria, then we should expect to see some rollback. So far, now it's early, we don't see much evidence of either one of those things happening. In Argentina, for example, the Makati government, which is right up center, is not rolling back social policy expansion because political costs are too high. Again, it's still pretty early. We're, we're, if there is a, an incipient right term, we're at the very beginning of it. But there's at least some reason to think that social policy expansion will survive both the end of the commodities boom and the end of the left turn. And this is very much in line with Candelaria's arguments both in this book and elsewhere. Uh, as Candelaria has argued more explicitly in other work, policy makes politics. And social policy in particular tends to be pretty sticky. Social policy expansion in, in, in Candelaria's case and other cases created a coalition of stakeholders that can be expected to pretty fiercely resist retrenchment. Under democracy, very few governments are going to have an incentive to take on such a... I can't believe I just said the word stakeholders. <laughs> anyway. So, to the, to, the extent, to the extent that there's variation going forward, I would think about two possible variables or factors. One, will reforms that are negotiated with conservatives in Congress, like Chile and Mexico, prove to be more durable than those that are imposed by a single party like Argentina? That's one question. And secondly, and this gets back to my distinction between discretionary and non-discretionary, will weak states be able to sustain non-discretionary policies? Mm -hmm. 
Um, Non-discretionary policies, I'm sure, will persist in Uruguay and, and Chile. But in countries like Bolivia, Ecuador, Peru, maybe even Argentina and Mexico, the specter of future repoliticization, I think, is very real. Uh, there was an incredibly impressive, to me, shocking wave of non-discretionary reforms in Latin America in the 2000s. But given the fairly non-vibrarian nature of many Latin American states, I fear that, that at least some of these reforms won't be sustained over time. The policies will stick, but they will eventually be repoliticized. Um, I think I've hit my 13 minutes, so I'll stop there. Thanks. Thank you. Fantastic presentation and fantastic remarks. Instead of kind of going to the response, maybe we could go to the floor and get a few oh, questions, okay. and then you could work in responses to Scott and Steve, and of course, of answering some uh, comments and, and questions that people have. The floor is open. Thanks, Melissa. Yeah, thanks to all of you. So excited. I haven't read the book yet, but now I will for sure. So I have a question, a very simple question about um, the the. the causal factors behind the mobilization. So the mobilization is a key factor or one of the elements that, that drives the, the policy expansion. But what drives the mobilization? What are the conditions of possibility for the mobilization of the coalitions that turn out to be effective? Mm -hmm. Go ahead. And then, um, and then you could also answer, you know, respond to some okay. of Scott's and Steve's, which I suspect are not. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, so... So th this is a, a question that I, I generally get. It's like why some countries have mobilization and others don't, or electoral competition. And, and so the, the <coughs> conditions for the emergence of, of these movements, so, so these movements actually, the movements of outsiders grow when they can forge these alliances with labor unions. I think that's a fundamental aspect. And building on, on, on what Steve said, it's, uh, it's true that labor unions are weaker, but the countries in which these coalitions were formed are countries in which labor unions are stronger. And the, the condition for labor unions to decide to ally with outsiders is that they get divided. So you have a division that is usually connected with a more traditional corporatist view of the labor movement and a more democratic one. And those more democratic movements, which are not necessarily left, maybe more sort of Christians or more oriented, more Catholic, sort of decide to form a broader labor movement that can actually mobilize in defense of their own demands also. And most of these movements have a lot of public sector workers. And public sector workers grew a lot in the context of expansion. So even some of the unions, like in Brazil, you had social workers. Now, were sort of kind of influential in the late 80s. In the 2000s, they are very influential because they have a lot of power in the state structures that they themselves helped create. So it's like the, I think the unions are, are different from what they, they were before. They are weaker, but that some sectors are very influential in politics, and they can mobilize a lot. And when they are divided and there's a, there's a sector of that movement that can actually sort of mobilize with outsiders, that's a condition for the mobilization to get formed, to actually be able to be influential. And, and the overall setting is a democratic regime, which it's true that I don't discuss that at length, but it's, it's the argument, I mean, it's a condition for, for all these protests or organizations to take place, is that you actually have a regime that is not going to intimidate sort of activists, that it's not going after people that, that allows them to organize. Hi, thank you so much. 
Thank you so much for the presentation. I can't wait to read the book. And I have two questions. If you could identify yourself. Uh, my name is Cecilia. I'm from Argentina. I'm a oh. mid-career MPA student. Um, um, the first question is, uh, I've been living in Spain for the last 10 years, and it seems to me, whenever I have debates with my colleagues as well, that these kind of non-discretionary policies in Latin America are called like populist uh, policies, whether in Spain or European countries, they are called welfare uh, social policies. Mm -hmm. So maybe if you can build that distinction. And the second one, I'm, I'm a little bit worried about what's going to happen in the region because although uh, many new governments can maintain the social policies, there are other ways to really uh, diminish the impact they can have on low-income people, like increasing the price of utilities, uh, like not dealing with the problem of inflation, or like not investing not adequate in the, the, the salaries of teachers, of public uh, school teachers, and, and so on. So if you can yeah. talk about that. Certainly. Um, so the idea that these are populist is interesting. I, I think there's, I mean, I, I don't know if I have an answer. I mean, there's the idea that when sort of leaders reach the poor in Latin America is because they are manipulating them. So that's the main idea because that is the view. Either because these are very unequal societies and people think that the poor don't deserve or because that has been the case always or because there are some populist parties in the region so everything they do is assumed to be wrong. Even though sometimes the policies that they do are not bad. I mean, and so so that's that's one of the, the things. And, and in terms of the social policies, whether they will be sustained, I agree that I probably in terms of what may happen in the future, we may see some, some kind of erosion of wages or salaries. I think there will be more adjustment on the formal sector than on the outsiders. I mean, largely because these policies are very hard to retrench. I mean, there may be some kind of overtime erosion of benefits, but it's really hard because in many countries, well, at least going back to Steve's question, in the countries in which they were negotiated with social actors, they tend to be fixed, like the benefit levels. For example, in Argentina in March, the government decided to, there's an automatic increase of transfers and pensions twice a year. So that's by law. And the government decided to reduce the increase like minimally, like less than 5%. And they had to sort of almost the head of the sort of social security agency had to resign because it was like everybody immediately knew that they had been tampering with the coefficient, and so they had to sort of, you know, come out. Everybody came out in the press saying that they sort of asking for excuses, that they, that they didn't mean to. That So it's really, it's, it's like the traditional formal sector sort of benefits in some cases. In the countries in which there's a lot of kind of in Chile, for example, one of the cases in which conservatives are strong and have been sort of trying to push against expansion, well, they actually promoted expansion, but of smaller benefits. I think Chile is a country that we will see a lot of change in the future, actually in the direction of the more inclusive benefits, because there's a lot of protest for pensions. Um, I actually worked on a, on a paper on education. There has been the highest you know, income tax was created by a right-wing government, actually, in the context of protest. So protest is something that you know, may play a role in what goes on in these countries. I think the most difficult case is Brazil, which is undergoing a huge crisis, and, and that's, that's the one that deserves a lot of attention. Uh, maybe I, I could ask a question about yeah. kind of playing off the, both of both Scott and Steve asked the why, why now, or why 1990s, yeah. why 1980s, 1990s question, and this idea that maybe it's 
um, not the existence of democracy per se, but uh, a certain level of maturity of democracy. Mm -hmm. And so that's an intriguing idea. There's a lot of different ways to interpret that, right? I think at minimum, it means it has to be more than a minimal sense of democracy where right. there's competitive party elections. It probably, I mean, Steve, was, that was an interesting comment. You have to, probably what it means is you have to have some assurance of autonomy, that if you prefer, an, uh, if you, if the government pursues a social uh, reform strategy or expansion of social policy, they won't get overthrown, like Allende right. or Arbenz, just to pick two random examples, right? Right. Um, and then, but really, it seems like for you, it, it's kind of a, a picture of democracy settling in so that social forces become accustomed to kind of a pluralist political give and take and social mobilization can occur and that doesn't occur overnight when something, you know, flat institutional like free and fair elections happen. Right. So what is the idea of a democratic settling in that enables right. the why, an answer to the why now question? So, I mean, so I think it's, it's both that Steve was saying sort of the, the endurance of democracy. So this is the, 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 the most, the longest wave of democracy in the region. But some of the countries that began to expand were doing it at the very beginning of this wave, right? And it's true that the third wave of democracy is a time in which, you know, there's less international pressure against democratization or in favor of authoritarian regimes. But I don't know to what extent leaders knew that at the very beginning. And so some people were expanding when other countries had authoritarian regimes still at the time. So it's a time in which some things are changing. I think... And the context in the 1960s, which was a time when some of these reforms could have taken shape, I think, in some countries, was a different context in which the threat of radicalization was a bigger one. And I think that created that if rural workers were asking for land, that was like threatening the entire regime, or it could be Cuba in Brazil or something like that. So I think that threat is, is gone. But whether these, these countries would be stable or not, I think that wasn't given at the beginning of this process. <coughs> I think what is different is that the scope of people who are included in the system is larger. So that's why the competition matters, because Brazil had sort of illiterates who couldn't vote. And Scott was saying, well, maybe they could mobilize them some way. But, I mean, the capacity to get away with sort of lots of people, like Brazil had in the, 19, in the 1960s, like, I think 60% of the people lived in rural areas at the beginning of the 1960s, and that begins to change. And that's both in Brazil and Chile. We start seeing some changes when urbanization happens. So if I were to say what's the structural issue behind this is urbanization. And so you have more people in urban areas, and, and their poverty and neglect is more visible also. It's also more likely to organize. And also the parties that were sustaining their power on mm, mm, uh, manipulating people in rural areas start losing that base. <coughs> and that's what we see in Chile with Allende, with the Christian Democrats in the 60s, which are the very mobilizational ones, and also in Brazil um, in that decade. So I think sort of the urbanization, the erosion of these conservative parties' bases are, are important processes. Uh, that why is it different today? Argentina, which had an expansion in the 1940s, it was one of the most urban countries, even in, compared to European countries at the time. So I think that's one of the aspects that matters. Yeah, you could identify yourself. Sure. My name is Jean Botello. I don't know if the book uh, 
respond to my question, but did you identify degrees of social policy expansion depend on the government in place or other factors? Like whether there's a left government in place. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so what I do is to look at why governments decide to expand and then whether they do inclusive or restrictive policies. And that, I argue, depends on whether there's some input of social movements in the design process. And in the case of Brazil, I find it like an inclusive one. I think there's, there's a lot of literature on Brazil, especially in the earlier period, sort of talking about that. And I think also that in, in the more recent period, even though it's a result of electoral competition, I think that leads Cardoso first and then Lula to expand Bolsa Familia. I think the fact that, that the social movements in the PT were very strong pushing for broad policies. Actually, they wanted something different initially, but they ended up with Bolsa Familia. It's, it's something that led that program into an inclusive forum. Um, I, I have the sense, without having read the book or studied the region, that the social policy was not the the two so the bifurcated social policy worked also by excluding many people from the formal sector because it was so costly to hire new workers um, into the formal sector. So, does the expansion um, reduce the gradient and make? You know, will that affect informality mm -hmm. in the region? Right. Reduce informality by... By making it easier to hire people and bring people into the formal sector. Right. The difference between hiring informal and formal. Yeah. So there was, there was somehow a debate at some point about whether the creation of these benefits would erode the formal sector. So, I mean, if people get protections outside the formal sector, why pay for them? So employers would not would hire people without protections. And actually, it didn't, at least the, the sort of the data that are available don't show that. One of the interesting things which I cannot answer, I don't know the answer, is how stagnant is the formal sector in the region. And once it kind of reached a level of formality, sort of more or less a maximum, then it may vary a little bit, but it always goes back to the size, right? To, so Argentina is like around the 40, 45. That's like similar Chile, similar Uruguay, and other countries are like 50s, in the 50s, close to the 60s. And, and there may be a crisis, it goes up or down, but it has to do with other issues that are not. I don't, I don't believe that social policy has a strong impact on that. I think it's more structural, like economic. I mean, what countries produce, how they can absorb people, and, and so on. Thank you so much, Candelaria. I'm looking forward to reading the book. I'm just curious uh, because you have oh Arturo Reynoso uh, because you mentioned that well um, the Romans wanted to expand services, they didn't want the movements from the bottom to evolve and all of that stuff. And to me, sometimes uh, I always have because I, I'm stuck in the Cold War. Whether the Cold War had anything to do with the fact that democracy is being allowed to flourish and that governments feel freer now to allow for expansion without interference or without the fear that they will see a movement uh, to be construed as a communist or socialist movement or something like that. Is that something that you consider? And I'd like to hear your point about that. 
Yeah, so um, so many people have written, I mean, and I think Steve also in, in his book on Parsi, it's like the idea on the left in Latin America recently, the idea that sort of that sort of the left has more chances of organizing and getting to power because it's not the radical left that people feared in the 60s. And I think that is true. But I was thinking now about stability and so on, that actually some governments expanded benefits because they feared they would be overthrown by the, by the people who were sort of demanding them or in the context of like Argentina in the 2000s. So there was this massive mobilization after the crisis and there was even one of the presidents who was an interim president had to anticipate elections because there was a repression of some of the protesters who were unemployed workers. And, and so, so these protests are things that governments sometimes fear, and, and especially if, if they are very massive. Um, so maybe I should answer one of the questions, or try to answer, I don't know if I have an answer, one of the questions that Scott asked about the book by Albertus and wh why is it that he sees uh, redistribution as being sort of more important under authoritarian regimes than as democracy. He's talking about land reform and sees different kinds of land reform distributive, colonization kinds of land reform, but money, the sort of land is not taken away from somebody else, and then the redistributive one, when governments take away from ones and give to others. And, and he says that can only happen under authoritarian regimes. I don't see really the contradiction with the argument. I think it's a different policy area. It's a different kind of dynamics. I mean, you don't see here that policy expansion is like taking away from someone to give to, I mean, to others. It's like, in fact, many governments are creating the idea of expansion as an investment. One of the, I, I find, most interesting things is that Many times, or, or, or there is a growing belief that the fate of the people who are at the bottom of the social structure is actually connected to those who are in other sectors of the social structure, which is not sort of casting these policies as redistributive conflict, but casting these policies as a benefit for everybody. And I think that's a, that, that creates a different mm -hmm. dynamics than, mm -hmm. than the more redistributive land reform and, you know, governments do. Yes. So, um, I'm Moshik Temkin. Um, Candelaria, thank you so much. I actually have two, two questions. Uh, they're both going to betray my identity as a historian. Uh, the first is actually taking off on the gentleman's uh, question here about the, 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 the Cold War. Um, and it has to do... Um, or, or let me actually step back a little bit. If this book were had a, a version of it, which was uh, which was history, yeah. um, how important uh, would geopolitics be? So, if we take the the Cold War framework, we have you know Arne, our colleague here, wrote a little bit about uh, Latin America in, in the Cold War. Um, it seems to me that it's not just a matter of the left not allowed to say you know be in power for too extended too too much of a time but both from the american side and from the the communist side it's democracy itself which is not not really allowed um as it were so it's only really with the kind of fading of, of the cold war that you even can have this kind of conversation about within democracy what degrees of uh social policy expansion and other issues can uh, can come up so I, I want you to address this a, a little bit. Um, the second question is more about the, um, 
I guess, the conceptual underpinning of, of this book. Even though it might seem obvious to a kind of social science crowd, a political science crowd, to talk about Latin America as some sort of sphere or unit, uh, I look at four countries with very distinct histories, uh, you know, different from each other, especially if, when we look at Mexico, which is in North America and it's in its complicated relationship with the, with the United States. So when you write about all these four countries together, what are you actually explaining as a whole? Is this something about democracy writ large? Is this something about Latin America? And if so, what does, I guess, what does Latin America mean yeah. as a kind of as a, as a category? Uh, and because one, you know, a historian would normally say, well, I'm going to, I mean, I might do comparative, but I'm focusing and, and explaining even one country is usually going to be, you know, more than enough. Mm -hmm. So what is it, I guess those are, the second right. question is, what is it here that you're really addressing conceptually? So, so on the first question of the Cold War um, or, or that period, I agree. I mean, when I was looking more at the cases over time, sort of at the past, I was trying to see whether the factors that I look at, like a competition or the mobilization, took place. I mean, that was what I, I'm very kind of domestic politics oriented. So, and and I, what I saw was that some of these things began to emerge. So there were movements, there was competition in some countries, but the overall structure or environment was one that was playing against it. So even if some countries did experience expansion during the Cold War period, like Chile in the 1960s, and led by the Christian Democrats and so on, I mean, it, in the end, I mean, the regime was non could not sustain itself. And and I think that was part of the, the context. I don't know what would have happened if all these sort of things were going on at a time when that international environment was not in place. Maybe we would have had expansion earlier on. And, and on, the, on the what I mean by Latin America, it's like what are these cases of would be the question for my political science you know, perspective. <laughs> and, and so these are cases of of countries that are middle-income countries that have sort of a deep divide between insiders and outsiders, that have um, more or less sort of cultural tradition that is more or less comparable, that underwent some sort of characteristic or some policy and political dynamics at roughly similar times, that were facing pressures during the debt crisis, that had dictatorships at similar moments, were undergoing transitions to democracy in the 80s and 90s, were all burdened by debts, then they conducted market-oriented reforms. So there are similar dynamics that these countries were going through. <laughs> 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 Felt a need to make an explanation for you. Okay, <laughs> so it's Sorry. time to finish. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, we're about out of time. Allow me to kind of make three, three points in closing, and then we can continue the conversation informally. Uh, uh, you know, kind of it's interesting. You don't kind of get from the panel that this is occurring in the context of the Kennedy School, in uh, where most of what we do is public policy training, right? And so I think for a, a Kennedy School faculty, but especially student audience, the, the really important point of the book, and then also the comments and questions on the book, right? We're really good at looking at a policy and policy design and de debating whether a conditional cash transfer, such as the bus of familia, is better than some other policy or whether 
the trade-offs between a universal policy versus a targeted one, right? But this debate here is prior to that. It is what are the political conditions that enable policy analysts and policymakers even to entertain those choices in the first place, right? Because the, the point is, in Latin America, you couldn't even entertain that kind of, it just wasn't on the table, and then it becomes on the table for a whole bunch of really deep reasons, which we've explored today, and then the policy making and policy analysis exercise kicks in. But it's just to kind of be aware that for the policy maker, it, all policymakers are at the, the mercy and on the puppet strings of deeper political and social and institutional forces. Um, the, the second uh, kind of point in closing is uh, this conversation reminded me of a conversation I had many, many years ago. I was with uh, my friend Sanjeev Kagram, and we were both junior faculty members of the Kennedy School, and we were at some conference on democratization. And, you know, junior faculty were pretty cynical about the Kennedy School and Harvard and you know, all that. And after the conference, a bunch of uh, Harvard faculty had spoken, and they had just said really amazing things. And Sanjeev looks at me and goes, you know, maybe there is something really special about this place after all. But the really special thing is that the people is the people who are in it. And that goes, uh, that's what I was thinking as you guys were talking. The amazing book that you've written, the great comments and insights about the book and what it achieves but the other questions that it opens from Steve and Scott um, make me really, really happy to be part of this community. Um, so thank you very much for that. And then finally, um, the, uh, we can continue this conversation. There's an informal reception kind of flowing in this area and a little bit out in the hall beginning right now. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. You've been listening to ASHCAST, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. For more information about the Ash Center, upcoming events, and future podcasts, please visit our website, ash.harvard.edu, and follow us on social media at Harvard Ash. <laughs>